1: Hello, I'm Ann McElvoy, and this week The Economist asks, how will the financial crisis continue to shape the future? I'll be talking to the prominent investment strategist Rishir Sharma about how the world is changing.
0: There's a dramatic drop in growth rates in every single region in the world. We now have deglobalization going on. Income inequality has been turbocharged.
1: And how people are rebelling in return.
0: This is what I think is laying the ground for this anti-establishment wave to sweep the world.
1: I'm joined now by Roshia Sharma, Chief Global Strategist at Morgan Stanley Investment Management and author of a new book, Rise and Fall of Nations, Forces of Change in the Post-Crisis World. Roshia, first of all, when we talk about the world as being in a post-crisis state, what do we
0: really mean by that? A lot of the trends which existed in the BC era, the so-called before-crisis era, have been turned on their head in the AC era, the after-crisis era. And what do I mean by that? So some of the trends like globalization or this wave towards electing new leaders or re-electing them, and even things like income inequality, all these three trends which have been turned on their head in the post-crisis era that we now have deglobalisation going on, income inequality has been turbocharged. And we also now have the fact that there's a huge anti-establishment wave running through the world.
1: Let's talk about that first, that idea of popular revolt, but also sort of popular revolt against some things that people took to be largely settled, like the supremacy of liberal... Capitalism. I wondered whether you needed to disentangle cause and effect a bit more because certainly there does seem to be this phenomenon, whether you look at uh, Trump in the United States, uh, the Brexit vote in, in Britain and top of populist left and right in Europe. But they don't seem necessarily to all go with economies that are doing the same things. So why do you assume that the link is economic rather than cultural or something else?
0: Well, because uh, look at what's happening like in Latin America. In Latin America, the exact opposite is happening in the political sphere, which is that there's an anti-establishment wave running in Latin America. But there the people coming to power are the classic free market pro-business kind of leaders from Argentina to even Brazil now and to Peru. So uh, the Dominant theme for me here is anti-establishment. And it's not just about the establishment as we know it. People who believe in uh, free market economics and they're all being turned out. In Latin America, the exact opposite is going on, that you get got leaders who are very left-wing, who are being turned out, and you get these new leaders coming to power there.
1: But they're just as affected by post-2007, 2008. They live in the post-crash world, so what's yeah. different for them?
0: Well, the common factor everywhere is that this is the weakest economic recovery in history. Economic growth across the world is running at, about, at a pace of about 2 2.5% or so. Before the crisis, the average growth rate was close to 3.5% or so. And just look at how growth has collapsed even among the high-growth countries. There were about 60 economies in the world in 2007 that were growing at a pace of 7% or more. 60. That number is now down to just 8 or 9 So there's a dramatic drop in growth rates in every single region in the world. And this is what I think is laying the ground for this anti-establishment wave uh, to sweep the world.
1: And when you look at those growth rates and that collapse after 2007-8, did you think to yourself as you approached writing the book, I'm going to write the anti brics book, because your, your book is very different from the, the books that came out, Jim O'Neill's uh, being perhaps the leading contender there, that seemed to be saying, here are emerging economies, people take them seriously.
0: The first book I wrote, in fact, was all about that. The first book I wrote in which came out in early 2012 was very much an anti-brick pro, uh, book, because there was too much hype about emerging markets. I'm an investor. I'm forced to put my money where my mouth is, and I just didn't see the fundamentals or the reality back up that hype about emerging markets back then. This book is really much more about the fact that it is now conventional wisdom, I think, the fact that we are in a much slower growth world. And then what do you do with that? How do you still identify which countries will do well and which will not do well over the foreseeable future after having accepted the fact that growth is going to be lower and slower in all parts of the world.
1: And if you dig into that, where does that perhaps surprise you if you look at the wake of 2007? I suppose to say China is at some point going to have a hardish landing. You know, you didn't have to be remarkably prescient to see that. But what did surprise you after the crash?
0: Well, I think that there are some trends which are, uh, have really surprised me. One is this entire trend change in the population growth rates. I think this is something which is really underappreciated as to how big a factor that is behind the weak economic growth that we've seen in the post-2008 world, because it's got nothing to do with the crisis, and yet it is about coincidence, which is that the world's working-age population growth rate has been falling off a cliff since about 2005-2006. For much of post-war history, the world's working-age population grew at a pace of 2% a year. That rate is now down to just 1%. And as you know, there are two contributors to economic growth, productivity and the increase in, the, in a country's labor force. And they have historically contributed in equal measure to economic growth. But now what we're seeing is that the working age population growth is Growing at a rate which is just 1%. So that straight away knocks off one percentage point of the world's potential growth rate. I think that is a trend which is really underappreciated and why we're not being able to get back to the growth rates which existed in the BC era.
1: But when you talk about population growth, of course, these things, when taken globally, can stack up. And yes, so many of the success stories have been smaller countries, not necessarily with very large. Uh, rates of growth in their working age population. So I'm thinking of the Singapore's and some of the the, the Asian economies.
0: Our research shows something quite different, in fact, in the book. High population growth rate is a necessary but not sufficient condition for high economic growth rate. So if you look at the economies which grew at, let's say, 6% or more every year for a decade... In those economies, we found that the working age population growth rate was above 2% in 75% of the cases. And in fact, we, we could not find any major economy which was able to grow at 6% a year with negative working age population growth rates. So that's, I think, really tells you about how important that is. And just two quick points here. One, that China now is seeing a shrinkage in its working age population growth rate. And therefore, I believe for China to target a growth rate of 6% is totally unrealistic. And even when it comes to countries such as the UK, I think people sort of underappreciate the fact that how much the increase in working age population contributed to the growth rate over the last five years, and that all came from immigrants. Because if you look at the domestic population in the UK, that really is not growing anymore, The, uh, the working age population. It's all coming from immigrants.
1: Let's stay on, Britain. We've had something of an earthquake in our political circumstances here. So, Theresa May, incoming new Prime Minister, says she wants to make a success of Brexit. How should she go about it?
0: Obviously, keep the good parts and throw away the bad parts. Easier said than done. But I'd say that the couple of positives which have emerged from a largely negative vote, is one is to try and see about how to have less regulation to sort of stifle the UK economy. But the other two fault lines that I speak about in the book, which sort of affect UK, one is the size of London. Typically, in a healthy economy, the ratio in the population between the largest city and the second largest city tends to be about three to one. London's population is four times larger than that of the second largest city of Manchester here in UK. So I think that something has to be done about spreading growth much more evenly. And then I think there's this entire sort of thing about monetary policy and what role it should play. I think there's far too much reliance on monetary policy to get economic growth up. And one fact which sort of stares me here about what's happened in the AC world is the fact that in UK, much like many parts of the world, wages have been largely stagnant. The economic recovery has been relatively weak. And yet asset prices have gone up significantly. And the big beneficiaries of asset prices tend to be the rich. So I think income inequality is a very big issue. But the fact that the rich are the ones who really benefit from high asset prices and, mo- and the very easy monetary policy has played into that angst.
1: So the monetary policy you're suggesting has helped fuel that. I mean you don't sound 100 miles away from someone like Thomas Piketty on the on the asset price uh, aspect. But how would you go about it addressing that? You also talk in your book very entertainingly about bad billionaires and the impact that they have. I mean it's entertaining but it's also very worrying in the sense that you say that they are they are driving some of this populist revolt. Your suggestion seems to be People are getting too rich by asset price uh, rises. What would you do about it?
0: Well, why is it not to use monetary policy in such an active way? Because like, to realize that if you throw all this easy money out there, uh, you can't control where it goes. You can sort of throw it all out there. And it creates many distortions in the economy. The house prices. Yes, in terms of, um, I'm talking about stocks, bonds, housing prices. All these have gone up a lot in uh, many parts of the world at the same time. And that's never happened before. Uh, because in the past, you'd have one asset price which would go up, but all three going up simultaneously is a real problem. So one thing is to realize that to keep using monetary policy, you will end up benefiting only a certain segment of the population and not everybody in the, in the uh, workforce.
1: But I'm still not clear where you would intervene in terms of, are you simply saying if you took monetary policy pushed it to the side a bit. Yes, absolutely. Then asset prices would automatically come down. Are you yes. sure about that?
0: Yeah, I mean, like I think that's what's you know like happened. Even you know since the Fed ended its quantitative easing in the US, we have seen asset price inflation slow down, even as far as the United States is concerned.
1: What's the role of banks here? Uh, you talk about bad billionaires. A lot of people talk about bad banks or bad bankers.
0: I still feel that the roots of a lot of these problems have to do with easy money because when you have so much easy money around and bankers have access to it. What are they going to do with it? They're going to go and make more money with it, especially when the cost is zero.
1: We rely on people like you to spot the new stars. And you, you mention Romania and even Pakistan as, as being under-attended to perhaps by investors and by the rest of us who follow this. What attracts you to them particularly?
0: Well, when I apply the 10 rules and try and see which countries look as good, average, and ugly, it's a very difficult world because there's no country which will rank 10 on 10 on all the rules, especially in today's environment. If they rank good on 5 or 6, that's pretty good. And both Romania and Pakistan tend to do that. And Pakistan is basically coming back from the dead. This was an economy that was parodied as being the most dangerous place in the world, and magazine cover stories were all about that. But I do feel the last couple of years, the uh, the, the, the number of terror attacks have come off a bit. The security situation has improved, and that is facilitating a revival in consumption and, in, and possibly even investment in Pakistan. And the banking system is flush with liquidity to try and facilitate that growth rate. So again, My time horizon is the next five years, possibly a a decade. Uh, An economy like Pakistan remains extremely unpredictable and volatile. But my best guess here, based on the 10 rules, is that Pakistan's prospects look relatively okay for the next five years or so. And same thing with Romania seems a bit more sort of stable to me, uh, like in terms of uh, they had a a big banking uh, crisis and a problem after the 2007-2008 Uh, meltdown. And they seem to have cleaned it up, been very strict with their uh, uh, disclosure norms. And you have manufacturing, which is beginning to do okay, like in Romania. And they've carried out some decent reforms after the crisis to give the economy some growth momentum. So I like Eastern Europe in general. I think they're in the sweet spot, which they're not part of the common currency. And yet they're part of the customs union, and they get a lot of transfers from Western Europe to help build out their infrastructure and, and and like investment. So I feel they're in the sweet spot, Poland, Czech, Romania. I'm relatively optimistic on all these economies in Central and Eastern Europe.
1: I can't let you go without asking you about the curse of the cover story. Tell me about that.
0: By the time a trend makes it to the cover of a popular global magazine, it is likely that the trend has already played itself out. And going forward, it's unlikely to tell you about what's going to happen. So we decided to sort of test this. And we used Time and Economist as two magazines, which obviously have a very uh, big global footprint, to see what happens. And we found that Time magazine, which tends to be the most general interest magazine for uh, in the world, that when a country made it to the cover of Time magazine in a positive way, in the next five years, we found that that country didn't do well. Its economic growth uh, slowed down sharply in two-thirds of the cases. And the data goes back to 1980. Now, why does this happen? I think there are two reasons. By the time that the editors are convinced to put a trend on the cover, it's likely that trend has exhausted itself, particularly because economic growth is very hard to sustain. And the second feedback loop comes from the complacency that once A magazine puts a leader on the cover of a country or puts a country there, the leaders tend to get rather complacent. Most countries tend to be stuck in the circle. And so therefore they don't do that well uh, because they get complacent after a period of doing well. What about The Economist? Well, I found The Economist's track record to be much better. It didn't fit this uh, curse of the cover story. And it's possibly because the culture at The Economist is maybe to be a bit more contrarian rather than to go with the consensus opinion, to be a bit more provocative. In general, I found that the, Af- uh, that the Economist was able to call it right in terms of the next five years, get it more right than wrong with the cover stories.
1: Well, on that note, you're particularly welcome. Keep a close eye on us. And thank you very much, Rishir Sharma. Well, that's it for The Economist Asks this week. Do let us know what you think about the post-crisis world on Twitter. We're at Economist Radio. And if you can't squeeze your thoughts into a tweet, never fear. There's still old-fashioned email as well. Get in touch via radio at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist.